Does anyone remember the band, the Ramones? You remember the Ramones? Like terrible, terrible music. Uh, What's so good, what was so groundbreaking about a band like the Ramones was that they literally learned three chords and thought they could start a band. Yeah? Uh, it reminds me of um, the 1967 album called The Velvet Underground and Nico. Does anyone remember that album? You don't remember it because no one bought it. It was, it was like a critical failure, you know, uh, or a commercial failure, I should say. And yet it was, it was important. Brian Eno, the, the great music producer, once said of The Velvet Underground, of that album, only 10,000 people ever bought that album, but every single one of them started a band. is something about um, hearing a story of an ordinary person or person like you or a person that you relate to doing something which you thought could not be done by ordinary people. I, you know, in, in, in a very real sense, I, just speaking for our story or for the underground story, I want us to be like that album. I, I want, we don't, I don't need people to know about us or know, to know about our organization or even to connect, but, but to hear a story and then everybody goes and starts their own band. You really only need to know a few chords, and you can do it. You can do it. And the music, the music was fun. It was energized. It's like the whole punk scene comes out of that just because you don't have to be a virtuoso to start a band. Some of you might be virtuosos. You know, Sean's here, I think. Maybe he's a virtuoso. That's okay. The world, the world can appreciate a few Mozarts and so forth, Beethovens. But we need Green Day, too. You know, we need... We need uh... Anyway, I, I, don't, I don't know why I'm saying that, but... Uh... Maybe, maybe in this, this short session that we have, what's my hard stop, Simon? Simon? Uh, like 20 to, quarter to. Okay, got it, okay. Um, my watch just stopped for some reason this morning, which I feel like is God's will. Like, I'm not supposed to care about <laughs> timers. No, it's not, don't worry. Um, I... I, I I wanted to show this video, but I couldn't pull it together. There's a, there's, a, there's a clip on YouTube, which you can find, of a Portuguese pianist named Maria Perez. She uh, is a virtuoso. And she, was, she was set to play, I think it was in Vienna, she was set to play this concerto as the full orchestra, and she would have been the, the lead pianist. <clears throat> And it's an amazing video because it's a, the camera angle is shot to the conductor and then Maria as she plays. I don't know if you've seen this. But she, um, the, the music starts, she's there, the audience, it's a full house, the audience is there. The music begins and the notes that begin to ring out don't seem kind of right to her. And she looks at her sheet music that she's brought and it's the wrong music. 
and she panics. And you can see it on her face. This is all in the video. You can see in her face. I'm in the middle of this performance now and I don't have the right music. Can you understand the anxiety of this situation? I have the wrong concerto. And so she doesn't know. She recognizes this other concerto, but she doesn't know her part. She doesn't have the music in front of her. And she's panicking, and she looks up at the conductor. And now the conductor's going. He's keeping the the time for the rest of the... And he looks down, and he says, what's wrong? What's wrong? And they have this conversation. It's all in the video. And she's like, she says to him, I I, I don't have the music. I have the wrong music. And he's, he's just conducting. I love this. He's just like... It's okay, it's okay, it's okay, Italian conductor. He said, it's okay. Uh, she says, I, 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 don't, I don't know this. I don't know. <laughs> what do I do? I don't know what to do. And he's, he tells her what it is, what the, what the piece is. And then she's like, okay. And then he says this. It's a, so beautiful, this exchange, because he's smiling. He, he wants to give her confidence in this moment of crisis. And he says these words where he goes, he goes, you know this. He actually goes, you know it so well. You know it so well. And then there's this moment where the, where the orchestra goes quiet and the piano piece is supposed to come in, this beautiful uh, uh, layered melody which she's supposed to be in to play in that openness and that silence that the orchestra creates. And you look at her face and he's like, you can do this, you can do this, you can do it, you know this, you can do this. And she's like, still a little panicked. And then she looks down at the keys and she begins to play this perfect piece. Doesn't miss a note. And she finishes that sort of measure. And the orchestra comes back in and she takes a breath. And it's great because the camera's still on her face and she goes, oh, puts her hands in her face. <laughs> I, have to, I have to somehow finish this. You know. And she goes on to play beautifully this piece, which, this piece which she knows in her heart. She knows in her heart. I've always thought that that, um, that exchange between the two of them was so poignant and maybe even critical for us. It's something that we do maybe as... So we, something we do for each other. There's something very missionary about that, uh, that exchange. That word that you know this. You know it. Don't be afraid. There is this music that we know. These three chords which we can all play. And maybe, maybe I'm part of why I'm, what I'm tasked to say uh, today is that you know this music so well. Don't be afraid. Just play. Just play. So, if we are going to somehow re-engage mission and ordinary people will take the mantle of that, uh, we're going to have to change a few things. We're going to have to change our view of a few things. And so that's how I'm going to come at this this short session. First, I think we need to change our view of the church itself as something that only special people can lead. That's the first thing we have to change. 
You know, Jesus gave authority to ordinary people. He chose ordinary people. It is strange, uh, very strange, that his followers all of these years later would professionalize obedience when he expressly does not do that. Now, don't get me wrong, he does commission. And in that sense, he does ordain people. But his ordination is much more reckless, you see. It's rooted. I find it ironic. You know, I have Presbyterian friends, right? And uh, my, my, do you have any Presbyterian friends? You should, you should they're lovely. Uh, I have Presbyterian friends, and, 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 and in, in the worst cases, they're very hierarchical. They're very much trying to hold on to uh, Episcopal power. You know, and I just think that's strange and ironic because they believe in the sovereignty of God. This is important. So I want to remind them, don't, don't you think that God is sort of sovereign over all things? You're the ones that say that, right? Uh, why are you worried about this? Of all people, you should be the ones. I mean, the Pentecostals should be the ones afraid to give people power, you know, because they'll just go crazy and do whatever they want. Uh, but you, of all people who believe in the sovereignty of God, you should say, you know, anyone who leads can lead. Anyone who God puts his voice in, in their mouth, his words in their mouth, they should be allowed to lead. I don't know. I just think there needs to be some sort of return to Jesus for the definition of what the church is. You remember that word in Acts where the Sanhedrin had called those early church leaders together and they were what was remarkable about their encounter with those early disciples was that they were unschooled. That's what made them cool. That's what made them uh, uh, outside the expectation of people. It's precisely because they were ordinary that it was a story to tell. That it brought glory to God. You see, the more we work to create expertise, or the more we work to create some sort of special elite class of leader, the more we diminish the story of God in and through us. So you say, well, Brian, I'm not qualified. I'm not ordained. I don't, I, I don't, I don't, I don't have the, uh, a seminary degree. I, I, I would say, okay, well, actually what you're doing is you're making an argument for why you're the best person to do mission, in point of fact. You're losing this argument because, because actually the people that should be saying, I don't know if I can do mission, are the clergy, are the ordained people, you know, the, 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 the people who went to seminary and have their degrees. They should be like, Brian, I don't know. I don't know. Can God use me? And I would say, yeah, that's tough, you know. (laughs) I think he still can, though. Somehow. In spite of your education. In spite of your status, you see. I mean, Paul comes out of, do you remember if he, you know, Paul goes through Athens. And in Athens, he... um, I think he kind of falls for an intellectual trip. He goes into the Areopagus and he, he waxes wise. He quotes their poets and he, he plays their game. In every city that Thessalonica, every city that he's gone through before then, they either love his message and receive him 
and there's some kind of supernatural experience, or they try to kill him. Those are his two experiences so far, you know. He, is, he lives an extreme life. And then he goes to Athens, and here's what happens. This is really important. In Athens, the people just find him mildly interesting. And, and, and they, they say, well, come back tomorrow. We'd like to hear more of this. this, is, this is, well, isn't this interesting? And he does. He comes back. Of course, he's waiting for his cohort. They're not there yet. So he sort of falls into this trap, I think, in a way, of playing their game. And at the end of it, at the end of Athens, there's not much fruit has come of it, but he leaves. And then we read, he goes to Corinth. He goes from Athens to Corinth. So we have the letter in 1 Corinthians. We have his state of mind going into Corinth. And do you remember what he says in, in, in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2? What does he say? He says, look, when I came to you, I was wrecked. I was in anguish. I was, I was laid low. I, I, I purposed in my heart when I came to you to not come with worldly wisdom. I, I purposed in my heart to come with Christ and Christ crucified and that alone. And if I was going to come, I was going to come in the power of God and not in the wisdom of men. He, he was broken by Athens. And he says, actually, what I, what I realize now is that, is that God uses the weak things of the world to confound the wise. Remember when he says in, in Corinthians 1, where's the wise man? Where, where's, the, where's the philosopher of this age? Is that how the kingdom comes? No, I, I, I purpose. He said, when I came to you, I, came to, I, I had to come with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. He was changed by Athens. God always uses the weak things of the world to confound the wise. Look, uh, I, don't, I don't really understand the, the relationship uh, with the Catholic Church in Ireland. I don't really understand that. Uh, but but in, in, in the United States, you know, the Catholic Church is sort of, I mean, for, for Catholics, it's important. But to everyone else, it's kind of irrelevant. Um, and, and so I find it sort of interesting and charming. Uh, and sometimes I go to Mass just because, you know, I sit there. And I, I don't understand what's going on, uh, always, but I sit in the back. Uh, two Christmases ago, I don't know why, I just felt this urge to go to the Christmas Mass. And again, you have to understand, I don't, I don't know any, I don't know, I don't know what's going on, but I, I kind of enjoy it. There's part of me that enjoys it. Now, here's, here's what, this, this Christmas Mass, I go and I bring one of my boys with me, and so we're sitting there. And it's packed. I mean, it's a big church. It's downtown. There's, I mean, there's probably, I don't know, 1,000, 1,500 people packed into this. And I'm, I'm assuming on a normal uh, Sunday, it would, it, would be, it would be small or just a scattering of people. But it's Christmas, so everyone's there. And this, this you know, priest gets up, and he's got his robe and his hat, and it's all so, so much. You know, it's, 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 it's so theatrical, you know. And I don't know, I just, I'm just sort of taken by it all. And I'm sitting there in the back, and he gets up, and he goes to speak, and I just, there's something about the American, you know, here comes the, the megachurch pastor. You know, he's going to get up, and he's just going to wow us with his diction and his eloquence and his, his coolness. Probably underneath his robe, he's got, like, leather on. And, um, but this guy got up. And I, I really mean no disrespect. He got up, and this, he was probably the worst speaker I've ever heard. He was stuttering. I'm not kidding. He could barely get through it. And I'm sitting there. I'm like, what's happening now? What's happening? There's a thousand people that came to hear this guy. 
There's some about it I just don't understand, right? And I begin to, I, I, I don't know, as I process that in my own heart, I, I begin to fall in love with this guy, with the whole thing. I'm in love with the whole thing because I realize that something else is going on here besides this person. That people have come here today not to hear this guy or because he's so awesome or he's so cool or they have his podcast or whatever. They, he, if he has a podcast, <laughs> no one is listening to it. You know, I, I, I don't know for sure, but I just, I'm assuming. And I realize they're not here for him. They're here for something else. They're here for the Eucharist. They're here for the nativity. They're here for God. They're here for something. They're here for tradition, but it's not him. They're not here for him. And I don't know why, but that just meant something to me. I, I think there's, there's something important about that. Now, maybe, maybe in your context, you know, being a priest meant power and all that stuff, but in mine, it doesn't. It's humble. That guy could be replaced tomorrow, and just as long as he wears the right clothes, and as long as he breaks the thing at the right time, hey, man, just give us the Eucharist. That's all we need you to do. You know what I mean? Just, just, we don't care if you're awesome or eloquent or anything like that. There's something about that. The returning the church and the, and, the, and the delivery of the sacraments to regular people, stuttering people, ordinary people, not eloquent people. That's right and beautiful. People come for something else. They didn't come for you. So you say, Brian, I'm not that good of a speaker. Or, Brian, I'm not, that, I'm not that talented. Or Brian, I can't play music or whatever. It's like, I just, again, I just think exactly. That's why you're perfect for this. You're perfect. Because then only God can be the one. God is why they come. The second thing I think we have to change is our view of ourselves. And in, in a very real sense, even this idea of being ordinary people is something you probably need to let go of a little bit. I mean, um, what, did, what did, did C.S. Lewis say? There are no mere mortals. Is, are there ordinary Christians, actually? Is there such a thing? I mean, you are a royal priesthood. You are the depository of the presence of God's spirit. That's a serious thing. You can't diminish that. You, you don't have a right to diminish that. The, 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 the saints of God in the history of the church cry out against that false modesty. To say you're insignificant or, 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 or somehow disqualified or can't be used is to actually diminish the power of God. At some point, we have to face, we have to admit, we have to own that we are made remarkable by his presence, his kiss upon our lives. That's what makes us amazing. I'm a, I'm a big uh, uh, fan of Martin Luther King Jr. and his life. And if you know anything about him, there's always these pictures of, of Martin King, and, he, and in many of these pictures, he'll have his like, lieutenants around him. And one, one that you'll always see is a picture of a guy called Andrew Young, who would go on to become the mayor of Atlanta and, a, and um, an active participant in, in King's vision. But there's something about Andrew Young I, I've always loved, or I've always been drawn to, this man who was friends with this other man. <laughs> Uh, that, that what made Andrew Young who he is and what made him sort of great is, is the fact that he knew King. And, and no one can ever take that away from him. 
Every time there's a documentary, every time there's a question about King's vision, every time he's, a street is named after him in our country or anything like that, he is always his best friend. Andrew Young was his best friend. That's what makes him significant. In a very real sense, that's true of us as well. What makes us significant is who we are friends with. It's that uh, John the Baptist kind of principle. We are the friends of the bridegroom. We are not the bridegroom, but we're friends with him. And that's a big deal. That's a big deal. I feel so peppy and, and American right now. I don't, know, I don't know why I'm being so positive. I'm sorry, I'll, I'll fix it. I feel very positive. That's not what I'm like uh, normally. This is, this is so... Our identity as missionaries is based on the truth of what God has said about us. And that requires faith. You are known by God. You are called by Him. You are sent into the world. We have to, we have to, He has deposited His Spirit in us. There's something miraculous inside you. You are capable of the miraculous. It's important. We have to change our view of ourselves. I have these, uh, I still lead a house church, so I I still have church in my home every week. I've done that for 15 years straight. So even Thursday when I was on the plane, there was people in my home. um, Looking at the word, praying for each other. And there's something really interesting about, trust me, my my house church is probably the worst micro church in the underground. It's like, it's like, not going to win any awards for awesomeness or anything like that. It's very ordinary. Very ordinary. Uh, and yet, and yet, even in the midst of that, we, we have a meal, we look at scripture, we pray for each other, we talk, where is God deploying us in the world? Not a model. I have better stories. Uh, but, but nevertheless, for years and years and years, we've asked people, what, is, what, what do we need to pray for in their lives? And I'm telling you, so many miracles have happened because we prayed. And there's nothing. It's, a lot of times people are falling asleep. It's very lame. But I started, I started uh, an Evernote of things we prayed for, miracles we asked for, that got answered. And so I started this thing where I never did before, which we actually don't do. We ask God to do something, then he does it, and we quickly forget it. Uh, we just sort of like, well, you know what? That was probably going to happen. Anyway, we, we dismiss it. You know? So I said, let's not do that. Let's actually remember each time this happens. And guys, I started this list. There are dozens of things that we pray for. We just thought, this is a miracle. It cannot happen. And it's happened. It's incredible, actually. So there's, these, there's this couple that comes. Um, and actually, they, very young. I want to, they're probably in their late 20s, mid to late 20s. And he, he sort of grew up in the church, so he's pre-spiritual, deep relationship with God. She, not so much. But she was willing to kind of go along with him until uh, they had their first son, whose name was Ezra, uh, got leukemia. And when he was four years old, he died. And in the midst of that suffering and fighting that leukemia and chemotherapy and all the things they were going through, her faith was deeply shaken. Her, her very small, minimal faith was deeply shaken. 
In the midst of that also, she became pregnant. And she had, she was pregnant with twins. And when, when, um, when her twin boys were born, uh, one of them immediately, almost immediately died. So he was born, he, may, he maybe lived a week, and then he died. And then her other son, who survived, Charlie, had cerebral palsy. And so she, her heart went cold and dark towards God. You gave me three sons and you took two away and I don't understand and I don't like you. And she wouldn't go to church. She wouldn't, she wouldn't do anything having to do with anything spiritual. Now her, her probably best friend was part of the underground and was always trying to sort of gently urge her back to a relationship with God. And, and eventually, through a lot of cajoling, convinced her, her name is Robin, convinced her and Kyle, her husband, to come to some, somewhere where I was at and I was actually teaching. And that day that she came, for some reason, I decided to talk about it. I scrapped what I was going to say and I decided to talk about death. This is not a typical topic, uh, but, you know, room full of people and I said, we need to talk about death. And I, I don't remember exactly what I said, something about death being the enemy of humanity and actually the enemy of God. Death is not something that we welcome. Death is not something just a part of life. Death is actually the, the great enemy of humanity. And I don't remember exactly what I said, but, but it meant so much to Robin that she held that in her heart and she told Kyle, she said, I'm never going to go to church again because I don't want to mess this up. I have this one moment where I can try to believe that God cares about me and my suffering. Eventually, they were willing, because of that, that moment, that, that kind of prophetic experience, they were willing to come into our home and become part of this little community. And slowly over time, she has begun to hope again, begun to dream again, begun to pray again. And they do, they actually work in the area of like cancer research and fundraising and stuff, and they're always trying to raise money. That's a big part of what they do. And so they'll bring stories, and they'll say, we just got a text. This happened two weeks ago. They got a text of a little boy who was being medevaced, who had some, a brain thing, and he was, they had already lost one son to cancer, and then their other little son was about to die. And could we pray? And so even there in, in our living room, as we began to pray for this, this little boy, which we did not know, in a state where we were not in, we prayed, and God rescued the life of this little one. And her faith grows just a little more. It's not flashy, but it's completely and utterly and profoundly supernatural and life-changing. We have to change our view of ourselves. This is what God wants, can do, will do with us. Just because we show up and because we speak, we try to speak the word of God to each other. I think we have to change our view of God because he really doesn't favor the wise and the educated. He has always favored the small thing, the humble thing. Uh, we have, we have uh, a guy who... 
uh, you know, we knew he, he had come to, come to faith in Jesus. His name's Derek. And he was sort of hanging around our community and our people. But he went through a period which some young men do where he just decided he didn't want to be married. He was married. I think he had one little kid at the time. He started drinking heavily and uh, cheating, like running around on his wife. And so those of us that knew him you know, tried to speak into his life. We tried to say, hey man, uh, please don't do this. You know, please love your family. Please turn away. It's not, again, not flashy. This is just what the church does. This is how we are there for each other. And through a lot of prayer, a lot of cajoling, a lot of hard work in his life, again, through this, there was just a moment where God broke through his heart. He broke down and he decided to re-surrender his life to Jesus. In doing that, he was reconciled to his wife and he, he decided, I'm going to let God have my life. Now, he, uh, Derek plays sports. He plays softball. And so one of the things that I wanted to do with him was just say, listen, I'm terrible at softball, by the way, but I thought, I'll, I'll come play with you. I'll come play on your team. Because he had a team with a bunch of non-believers. So, so me and a couple other Christians said, we'll join your team. Just put me in right field or somewhere the ball doesn't come. Uh, it'll be great. Um, and then afterwards, we, you know, we wanted to try to see if we could get those guys to look at Scripture. And so th- this is how what's called, what they, they now call Beer and Bible was born. Beer and Bible was born. And the idea was, well, it's in the name, isn't it? Beer and the Bible. That was it. So we decided to go to this one pub and... He would always try to get the guys to come to house church or come to Bible study, and all of them would say no. And so he said, well, let's do this. Let's go, to, let's go to the pub, and let's have a beer and read the scriptures. So he would bring, we would just print out. I remember the first one we did, uh, I said, well, I'll lead the first one, and you can see how it's done, and you can just take it from there. And so, of course, I chose John 2. That's what you have to start with. I mean, no? Water into wine? Wedding at Cana? Yes? Come on. You're drinking? No? You guys don't drink? No, Irish people don't drink, yeah. So we get there, and there's maybe 10 of his teammates there. They all order their beers. It's all there. We pull out the Bible. They, they don't know anything about the Bible. Never read the Bible, never seen it, don't know anything about Jesus. They heard of Jesus. Obviously, they've heard of Jesus. Uh, but we said, what do you think Jesus is like? Before we look at it, just, just tell, me, tell us who you think Jesus is. What is he like? They're crazy, crazy ideas. Some good, some bad, some, I don't know where you got that from. Just, that's interesting. Uh, and then we said, well, let's, let's read a story about Jesus. This is actually one of the first stories about Jesus where he kind of comes and makes himself into the public world. So we read John 2, and, and these guys, are, it was great. They, they're just like, okay, I did not know Jesus drank. That's cool, you know. I, I didn't know that he liked other people drinking. Like, you want to make sure everyone's drinking, you know. The more, there's not enough wine. We need to get more. That, I, did you expect that from Jesus? No, I didn't see that coming at all. They start telling their experience with Christians and experience with people that went to church and how weird it is. And, and, and all of a sudden, something begins to happen. Not just in those guys, because some of them did come to faith eventually, but something happened in Derek. And he realized, okay, these are my friends. This is, this is my, I like beer. I like scripture. I like Jesus. They need Jesus. It really is that simple. And so Beer and Bible is born. And actually now, these guys have, it, 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 it's grown. They have a vision <laughs> To, that every single bar in Tampa, people would be studying the Bible. That's a dream. 
That's a dream. It's a good dream. It's, and it, it's, it's a church in every bar, I suppose. Uh, uh, a well-lubricated uh, church in every, every bar. That's his hope. And now I want to say they're in, they're, in, they're in half a dozen. Where they have other leaders that go there. And it's a place where people can come. That's the church too. Uh, God is using people like Derek. To me, that is the best version of the church. The highest version of the church. The best possible expression of the church. Imperfect, clumsy, humble, ordinary, profound. Finally, I think we need to change our view of the world which is in need. Because the stakes are very, very high. There simply is not a place that you're connected to that does not need the church to be there. Part of what we have to do, I think, if we're going to give the church back to its people, to everyone, is we have to recognize that each of these contexts where we have friends, where we work, where we play, where we see need, where we walk, all of those places need the presence of God delivered through us. We have to see, again, the world as a place in need. A place in need of someone to go, of someone to be present. Part of what I'm uh, hoping and what we're trying to teach is that there is, a, there is a creativity in the people of God which already exists inside of us. And each time we try to command or control or to structure the church too much, when we structure the church too much, we inhibit that creativity. We inhibit what is possible. So I'll just give you a few examples of things that, at least when we've said, all right, anyone who wants to, to do something, figure out where are you called, where is there opportunity, and know yourself as a sent person by God. This is what people come up with. Uh, I told this, this story to the guys yesterday, uh, or this example to the guys yesterday. There's a group of people who started working with the homeless. And in starting to work with the homeless, they just started building friendships. And that meant, sure, that meant delivering food or things in need, but, but more than that, it meant creating actual relationships. And in the place of building relationships, actually building friendships and trying to do discipleship with people who did not have homes or people who lived on the street, is that it began to realize that these people are full of ideas and they're full of talent, and actually in many cases, they had real uh, artistic ability, real talent. So they started uh, an open mic night show for homeless artists, for homeless talent. And... and Every month, they would gather together and just let people who were, lived on the street, their friends on the street, to get up behind the mic and do their talent. And slowly over time, they realized some of these people had real ability. You know, just because you, you have an addiction or because you start having mental illness doesn't mean you didn't, all those piano lessons aren't still there or, or all, that, all that songwriting you did when you were younger wasn't there. So they came to us and they said, look, what we want to do is we want to we open, we want to start a... A, a, a recording studio, a music recording studio, and a music label. So they had an idea, they had it all figured out what they were going to do. Recording studio, 
music label just for homeless artists. And in that place, what we'll do is we'll take people that, that they, they don't have a lot of expression of their dignity. We want to give them studio time. So we'll say, look, you can have two hours of studio time. You come in. It's professionally set up. We're talking about... Uh, 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 you know, studio musicians that can play alongside you. We're talking about like a high-end music experience. We want to give you that so that you can see your dignity as a person again. And in that place, we'll also talk about Jesus, do discipleship, and be the church. Now, I'm sure if I sat around and thought for hours or days, I would never come up with that idea. But it's in them. It was obvious to them. Uh, there's a group of women that decided that they wanted to um, do a ministry that was based on hula hoops. Do you know what a hula hoop is? And they came to us and said, we, we have an idea for doing a ministry called Hula for Happiness. And I just thought, man, that's not a good idea. That's, that's a bad idea. But that's not what you say. You say, yes. Yes. Yes, because we give permission. That's what we do. And we're like, I don't see. I mean, I remember looking at the guys that I was with that we were kind of listening to the idea. Hula hoops. Yeah. Yes. What would you do? How would you do it? No, it's going to be great. We'll make hula hoops and they'll have like colors and that's how we'll share the gospel and we'll teach people to hula. And I'm like, okay, let's do this. Yes. So they start to sing. Guys, it's amazing. Did you know people like hula hoops? There's this whole culture, this whole hula hoop culture. I had no idea. This is a serious thing. All over the world, people hula hoop. That's what they do. They hula hoop. And they entered into this subculture of hula hooping, and they bring people in, and they're very good. In fact, they're so good that they're invited all around the world. All around the world. And I was laughing at this idea. And here, uh, Carissa is her name. Uh, she, 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 she sends me a video from India. She's dancing in front of 10,000 people. Her women are doing hula hooping and then sharing the gospel in front of 10,000 people in India. Hula for happiness. Look it up. It's on the internet. It's a real thing. <laughs> Sharing the gospel through hula hoops all over the world. They make thousands of hula hoops and give them away. They teach kids how to hula hoop and they share the gospel through it. It's, it's, I would not have come up all day. I think of myself as a creative person. All day, every day, I'm not coming up with hula for happiness. I'm just not. But people do it. We have a ministry from... from a, a group of women who are doulas, who work with, who, who just find women who don't have partners, who are about to have a baby and they're afraid, maybe it's their first baby and they just want someone and they're professional doulas and they work with people that are, that are giving life in the, that moment of birth and we have, we have a microchurch that works just with the dying, last six months of life and everything in between. I don't come up with this, I don't have a master plan. We just say to the people of God, where, 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 do you, where does your heart beat? Where are you connected? What matters to you? One of the things we do to help people figure out their calling is to ask the question of, to do an emotional inventory. What makes you angry? What moves your heart? Because not every single problem in this city bothers you equally, but something does. And when you see it, maybe it's, maybe it's kids without families, maybe it's uh, uh, fatherlessness, maybe, maybe, maybe it's, 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 it's people that, that don't have education, maybe it's something like homelessness, maybe it's loneliness, maybe it's, maybe it's depression, uh, maybe it is something like, like self-harm. 
not every single evil that we see, not every single thing that we see moves us in the same way, but something moves you. And if you sense that thing, please, please, I beg you, pay attention to it because it's God at work in you. Because he actually cares for every single suffering, every single pain, every single struggle in the city. And so if your heart begins to see something and feel something in, in synchronized with the heart of God, pay attention to that. It could very, very well be right now you're thinking of something. And you're supposed to be the one that forms a little team and begins to address it. We have to see the world differently as a place in which God wants to be uh, painting creatively his church upon the canvas of this city in the places of need and what artists call the negative space. Where, where is there nothing? That's where the church has to go. That's where you can go. Tell me where there's nothing. Tell me where the church is not present. Tell me where the gospel is not being shared in this city and beyond. Show me in Ireland those pl- the negative space. Show me that blue ocean. Show me that, that space. And I will tell you, that's where he wants someone. That's where his heart is beating. And I don't know if it's you, but anywhere you see that negative space, and you're there, and your heart is there, you're the one. Stop looking around. Man, somebody should do something about this, you know? Wow. Someone should really do something. You're the one. It's you. It's you. I'll close with this story. Uh, some of our, um, one, of the, one of the really most potent uh, examples of this in our city is a, a group of women that are called Created. And they started uh, early on trying to just deal with women who were uh, wanting to come out of the sex industry, which is a big problem in, in my city. Uh, both kind of clubs and dancing, but also prostitution, street prostitution, hidden brothels, those kind of things. Um, that whole industry, they wanted to deal with it and focus on it. They started immediately, they started doing street outreach in places where there was open prostitution. They would go and, and um, reach out to those women. But then eventually they started doing prison ministry where the women that had a prostitution charge, they would go and meet with everyone that got a prostitution charge. They would go in and just say, hey, this is who we are. We love you. And God loves you. And when you get out, if you want help, we're ready. They create residential facilities, really quite beautiful. But it's not just a social service. It's about delivering, ordinary people delivering to people in need the powerful word of God. And one of the things they do is they do a club outreach. So they'll actually go to strip clubs. Teams of these women will go to strip clubs. They have a relationship with the manager, and the manager lets them in to minister to their women as they're stripping. Like, in the, in the dressing room, not, not maybe like at the pole, but like, uh, sorry, that was crass. I, I apologize. Uh, so, so they'll go into the clubs and they'll, they'll, they'll minister to them. They bring them gifts. They pray for them. They get into their life. So they had a particularly good conversation with one of these dancers one night. And so they thought, we're going to wait for you. And when you get off, we'll go out uh, to a 24-hour diner or something. We'll just talk about your life and we'll, we'll, we'll see if we can love on you some more. So she said, that'd be great. And so they have to wait till like 3 a.m. when she gets off. And they're out in this parking lot at 2.30 in the morning, and it's very seedy, scary sort of situation, these women. But they know that this is part of their work. And so what they do is each, each, each night before they go out, they pray. And they ask God to give them some kind of word for whoever they're going to meet. And that night, one of the women that was praying felt like birthday, like it's somebody's birthday. And they didn't know who, and they didn't know who they were going to meet, and they didn't know anything, but they thought it's somebody's birthday. So they decided in faith they were going to go get a birthday cake. So they got a birthday cake. Now, what would have been really cool is if they would have put the name of the person on the cake, but, <clears throat> you know, limits. 
So they get a birthday cake for unknown person who we're going to meet later as a birthday. And everyone they met that night, they're like, is it your birthday? Is it your birthday? You know, this is the faith thing, you know. Now, if it's me, I ask one person, is it your birthday? They say no. I'm like, see, I can't hear God. Forget it. Why did I bring this birthday cake? I'm so embarrassed. But there's a birthday cake, and they walked around all night with the birthday cake. They're trying to figure out whose birthday it was. So nobody bit, right? Nobody did. And so they're out in the parking lot. The birthday cake's put away. They're out in the parking lot. And there's these, there's these men that are waiting for this woman who they want to wait for. They think they have some sort of rendezvous. They're going to hire her uh, for prostitution. And so they're there, and they see this, this, these two men that are waiting for this woman, and they're waiting for this woman. And they're just, they're, they're praying, and they're stressed, and they're like, come on, God. We want her to choose us, not her, not them. So they decide, in the boldness that only God can give ordinary people, they decide to go speak to the men. And they go over and they say, hey, guys, what, what's going on? What are you doing? And they say, oh, we're waiting for so-and-so. And they say, Okay. And then one of them says, is it your birthday? <laughs> is it either of your birthdays? And the one guy says, no, it's not my birthday. And the other guy goes, kind of gets quiet. These are big, kind of scary guys. He gets quiet. He says, why did you say that? Why would you ask that? And she says, well, I, I don't know, but we, we were just praying, and, and we felt like God was saying, today is someone's birthday. And he's like, really, why are you saying it? You're freaking me out. And they said, why, why is that freaking you out? And he says, because, because today is my wife's birthday. And the other guy goes, man, this is freaking me out. I'm getting out of here. I'm leaving. This God stuff is scary. He's like, we got to go. We got to get out of here. And he's like, you're right. We got to go. This isn't good. And they take him and they say, look, before you go, you need to go home to your wife. Before you go, I have a cake for you to give your wife. <laughs> I mean, if you knew the women of created, you would know that this, they're, just, they're just like you. They're just like me. They have stories. They have baggage. They're sinners. But they're brave. They're brave. And they believe something about God, about themselves, about the church. And they believe something about those women that dance in those clubs. They believe that those women matter to God. They believe that somebody ought to to traverse the barrier that has been put up between us and them. There's churches, and if you're religious and spiritual and good, you go in there. There's strip clubs, and if you're bad and unspiritual and unholy, you go there. And that dichotomy is false. It does not exist. There are ugly, sinful people over here, and there are people who are deeply loved by God over here. It's just a human race. I'm assuming that none of you in this room are currently strippers, so it might be hard for you to get into that world. But someone you might know, who might know someone who's in that world or in that life, God wants a church in that place. He wants his church in that place. And it has to be led not by, not by elite, extraordinary people, but by you. By you. It's, a, it's an alteration, ultimately, of how we see ourselves 
and how we see the world around us. That's what has to change.